Chapter 8 of Pioneer Work in the Alps of New Zealand by Arthur Paul Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter 8 Fox Glacier Continued. Return to Camp. Unpleasant Surprise. Result. Weckus. Back to Ryan's. Remarks on the Glacier. To return in such a dense fog was by no means easy especially as i could not think of descending the rotten rocks up which i had come in the morning for even had it been possible to find a route the falling stones would have been too risky fortunately my bump of locality is strong and by dint of dropping sliding and scrambling over steep faces of unpleasantly smooth rocks and slippery grass i managed to hit off the point to a nicety at which to cross the ice on reaching the south bank and skirting the small icefall, the few minutes' work amongst the crevasses gave some trouble in the fog. It is no easy matter to travel down a glacier, even when one knows it well, in such a dense white mist, but to find a good route after only once traversing it was rather difficult business. After travelling till 5 p.m., it seemed that I had gone far enough to have reached the point where I first took the ice in the morning. There are no large stones on the glacier by which to guide one's course, so it was not surprising to find, on turning towards the bank, that I had gone about one hundred yards too far, and was abreast of the precipice under the cone rock. Another half-hour, however, saw me on my way to the camp, and though wet to the skin, decidedly pleased at being well out of an awkward position, and looking forward to dry clothes, good fire, and snug camp hurrying along in the deluge of rain which had set in, splashing down the creek and clambering over the boulders, I arrived at the camp about ten minutes before dark. Instead of my comfortable little shelter and dry clothes, I found only a wreck. The batwing and a quarter of the fly had been burnt, the little canvas bags of food and the pea-rifle, which usually hung on the ridge-pole under the fly, were lying scorched on the ground. In one corner a heap of ashes, a button or two, and a large hole in the scrub bedding were all that remained of my dry clothes. This was the crowning disaster of an unlucky expedition. A man familiar with his Virgil would probably have consoled himself by saying, Forsen et he olum meminis ejuvabit. I fear, however, that I made some other remark, not in Latin, and did not think of Virgil till afterwards. With only a few minutes of twilight to work in, I commenced to fix up some sort of shelter out of the remains in which to pass the night. A more weatherproof shelter would have to be left till the morning in spite of the heavy rain. The fly I pitched as we had had it on the Balfour Glacier, and one end was blocked to a height of two feet with a few branches. This was all that could be done that night, and having kindled a fire and put the billy on to boil, I sat down to see what remained out of the wreck. The first things to be missed were the candles, which had of course been burnt and their loss at once put an end to further investigation till daylight. Fortunately, I had a few matches in my pocket, and could manage with care to hold out for a few days as far as they were concerned. Having had something to eat, and some half-burnt tea without sugar to drink, I put on kilts, i.e. wrapped the blanket round me, and proceeded to dry my clothes. By ten o'clock some of the garments were fairly dry. So, thoroughly tired after the long day, I rolled myself in the blanket, and in spite of the storm, soon forgot this miserable world in a sound sleep. However long or hard a day's work has been, we cannot sit down and have a spell on returning to camp at night, 
because possibly there is firewood to gather, bread to bake, and a meal to cook. Indeed, sometimes a meal has to be found with a pea-rifle. It would be to either of us a luxury beyond belief to have a third man whom we could occasionally leave in camp, and to find things ready on our return in the evening. The extra work in the evening is far harder than one would imagine. Even supposing a permanent third member to the party was impossible, it would have made our work considerably quicker and less trying had we been given a man who could carry a good load of provisions for two or three days from habitation and then be sent back. This would give us a good stock to fall back on and possibly save a long tramp back for food or else a period of starvation. It is a trial to one's powers to have to do mental work and heavy packing at the same time in such terribly broken country and for a prolonged season of seven or eight months. The authorities, however, did not consider it necessary, not having any idea of what rough work it really was. In fact, on one occasion when mention was made of the necessity of carrying heavy loads, someone asked, Why do you not employ a spring dray or pack horse? Imagine a spring dray over fifty-foot boulders, or along a narrow arete. It was often difficult to get the dog over the country. The driving rain and high wind whistling under the fly woke me early and at daylight I set to work to build a more satisfactory shelter. The creeks and rivers were in flood and uncrossable, so there was every prospect of two days' delay before I could get away. It did not take long to put up two good windbreaks, with branches and ferns at each end of the fly, and to generally fix up a shelter in which I was as happy as a sandboy, in spite of the storm. There was now time to examine the effects of the fire, which had been very erratic. In the first place, it is hard to explain why the fly had not been totally destroyed, for it was only pitched six inches above the batwing. It would seem impossible for the latter to burn from the bottom so completely as it had, without setting fire to the fly, which is the most inflammable portion of the camp, owing to the fire always keeping it dry. At each end of the batwing we have two pockets, a large one for field books, etc., and a small one for watch matches and so forth. In the two large ones I had left some photographic plates, notebooks, and a pound of candles. The books and plate boxes were charred a little, and the candles had disappeared. In one of the smaller pockets were a box of fifty pea-rifle cartridges and two boxes of matches. The cartridges were unhurt, while one box of matches had exploded, and the other only melted in a solid mass. On the bedding, my dry clothes and tobacco were in one corner, and within a foot of them the blanket, with the half-plate camera and some newspapers on it. Of these, the clothes and tobacco had gone absolutely, leaving a hole burnt to the ground in the scrub where we slept. The other heap was untouched, except the papers on the camera, which were burnt to an ash. Douglas has only once been burnt out, and his experience is the same as that of others, namely, that nothing escapes. My misfortune was, therefore, not as bad as it might have been, and there was good cause to be thankful that some provisions were still left since my retreat was cut off shelter was not of so much importance because had all the canvas been destroyed i could have knocked up a mai mai of bark and ferns in an hour it is impossible to say how the fire originated unless i had left the candle burning when leaving camp at dawn in which case no doubt one of the wekas had pulled it over while looking for buttons or some such digestible food the white candle would be an irresistible temptation. After all, it is of little consequence how the thing happened. The fact remained that I had to sit and sigh in idleness for three days. 
whilst turning out the contents of one of my pockets i came across a scrap of an old world on which was a most appropriate poem entitled every hour has its end this fact is often too true to dispute but was open to argument under the present circumstances with nothing to read and very little to smoke the hours appeared to have at least one hundred minutes the family of Wekas, which had taken possession of the camp, were very welcome, and I was able to watch their mode of procedure when dissolving partnership for the time being. As already stated, when the male bird thinks he has done his share in the education and bringing up of the family, he dissolves partnership. If in a good locality for food, he drives his mate and young ones away, but if in a poor locality, he departs to happier hunting grounds himself. The parent birds, while rearing their young, hardly eat anything themselves, and grow as poor as a church mouse everything they find is carried to the youngsters when a pair has only one chick it is very ludicrous to see them rushing up to it and jostling one another in their eagerness to give it a piece of bacon or bread and sometimes asking it to try a piece of jam tin or tempting it with a choice copper cartridge case the parent finds some such rubbish and rushes off to the overfed fledgling which is sitting and squeaking under a fern and holds the tempting morsel out in its beak the old one looks sideways at it as much as to say so good while the youngster having got it successfully down sits with ruffled feathers and looks at the world in general as if it would say that old food will be the death of me one of these days the first intimation i had that the pair at camp were going to dissolve partnership was when i threw out a piece of bread one morning paterfamilias instead of passing it to one of the chickens swallowed it himself while the rest of the family looked on reproachfully and seemed to know they must look out for squalls after the old boy had got all he could he suddenly turned round and attacked his wife and then the male youngster the female chick having wisely disappeared pro tem when i saw he was going to drive the family away and stay at the camp to enjoy all the good things himself i decided to put a stop to his little game and gave him a rifle bullet to digest he made a capital stew and a sorrowing family thoroughly enjoyed his remains. The next day Mrs. Wecka found the two half-grown chickens rather a large order. In the first place they both tried to shelter themselves under her from the rain, which upset her mentally and physically, and secondly the task of feeding them was too much for her. She therefore proceeded to drive away Master Wecka. That young gentleman, however, was not going to leave his family home without a struggle, and seeing his sister still petted and fed, he used to give her a good peck, when the old hen was not looking, and then run for his life before she caught him. I again interfered in the proceedings, and by dint of some coaxing, persuaded Master Wecka to come on to the bedding in the shelter, where he would eat from my hand. By degrees he gained confidence, and came in without fear, having a good feed, while the old hen remained outside, waiting for him. On finishing the meal he used to dodge about inside, trying to make his escape, and the old bird dodged about outside, to cut him off i would then throw a piece of bread away into the bush and while she went after it the youngster would slip out and run for dear life rolling his more favoured sister in the mud on the way on the tenth the weather cleared and gave me an opportunity to go down to ryan's hut therefore leaving my friends to settle their own family affairs i rolled up my goods and started down the river meeting douglas and betsy who were coming up to join me however my ankle was still weak and wanted a rest so we went back to the hut to make a new batwing and generally repair damages 
It required another ten days' work to map the glacier, so we returned on the 16th and took the camp three-quarters of a mile further up the creek than my first camp, intending to make some observations as to motion, etc., and complete the map of the valley. Fate seemed to be against us on this glacier, for out of the thirteen days away from Ryan's hut we had only two fine ones, and those were the day we came up to camp and the day we returned to Ryan's. We were, however, able to make a more thorough exploration of the Fox and Victoria glaciers below the Neve, and take a few more bearings. On the twenty-ninth, our stores had come to an end, so the weather cleared and the sun shone out beautifully, but one or two snowfalls had taken place during the previous week, warning us that winter was approaching, and that if we intended to reach the head of Cook's River and the La Perouse Glacier, we must do so at once and waste no more time over the Fox Glacier. In any case, there was little left to be done there, while Cook River might prove troublesome, and there was a danger of further snow preventing our expedition. Consequently, we packed up and carried our loads back to Ryan's hut. The Fox Glacier is more attractive than many places much advertised and visited. It certainly has not nearly such a grand terminal face as the Franz Joseph, but it is in every other way superior for tourists. It is quite as easy of access, it has fine surroundings, and there are hot springs within a mile of it. But the chief attraction to my mind is that anyone with ordinary care can go a mile or so along the ice, or three miles along the south bank, on the old lateral moraines. This would enable many who have never seen a glacier to gain some idea of an icefall at close quarters, for though not so fine as that of its neighbor, the icefall of the fox is by no means a poor one. An easy and safe expedition could be made to the Chancellor Ridge, from which a grand view of the great peaks and the neve can be gained. If the government desired to open up the district, a track could be taken up to the glacier, and even along its south bank, at a small cost, and a hut placed on the Chancellor. To go even a short distance on to the Franz Joseph Glacier with safety would require an expert at ice work. There are many interesting features on the Fox Glacier, which are more marked than on other ice streams in New Zealand. On no other glacier in the southern Alps is the veined structure of the ice so apparent. In fact, I have never seen such a fine example of this anywhere. The ice is laminated to such an extent, just above the Cone Rock, that it resembles a ploughed field, and the furrows being from six inches to a foot in depth, and the same distance apart in places, are very troublesome to walk over. The lamination does not run in one direction, and though most of the lines are longitudinal, they sometimes curve gracefully toward the margin of the ice. Wherever a crevasse occurs, the effect is beautiful, and the lines can be seen descending perpendicularly as far as there is light to see. Another peculiarity on the fox is the number of moulins, or funnels in the ice. Abreast of and above the cone rock, they are most noticeable, and though not as fine as many I have seen elsewhere, they are very good specimens, from six to ten feet across at the top, and two or three feet a little lower down. For roche this valley does not equal the Franz Joseph, but has a splendid example of a great isolated rock in the cone. The northern bank, too, from the terminal face to the icefall, presents a good instance of steep faces of rock abraded by glacier action. Lateral moraines of various ages can be examined on the south side of the valley, and large erratic blocks found on the top of the cone rock. The individual points of interest may be surpassed, with the exception of the first mention, in other localities, 
but nowhere else in new zealand can they be seen to such perfection collected in one valley easy to reach and easy to inspect and examine owing to the smooth surface of the glacier in addition to this there is the fact of still more peculiar interest namely a glacier in approximate latitude forty three degrees twenty nine minutes thirty seconds south descending over nine miles to six hundred and seventy feet above sea level within ten miles of the beach this can also be said of the franz joseph but it does not at the same time possess all the other interesting features mentioned above nor is it so easy to travel on the very easy travelling and unbroken surface of the fox glacier shows i imagine that the ice is of greater depth than that of the franz joseph it may be that this smoothness is due to the bed of the valley having fewer obstructions that there are several rocky obstacles under the ice of the latter cannot i think be doubted and accounts for the heaving appearance which the ice of that glacier has i am not aware that the old saying still waters run deep can be applied to a glacier but it appears to me that the fox glacier must be of considerable depth or it would not flow down as steeply as it does without having a rougher and more broken surface at the terminal face the ice pushes its way under the level of the river bed in several places holes in the gravel caused by subsidence due to the melting ice can be seen towards the end of the summer the water too does not come out in an ordinary manner but bubbles up like a great spring to a height of three feet in ordinary weather and five or six feet during rain this shows that the streams which flow under the ice are considerably below the river-bed level when they reach the terminal face and on being released from the ice rush up to the surface with great force in july eighteen ninety four douglas and mr wilson paid a brief visit to the glacier and the former noticed a very marked change in the ice as will be seen in a later chapter we anticipate a decided winter advance in the franz joseph glacier and were disappointed to find that a retreat only was evident the fact of these two glaciers descending to such a low altitude would lead one to expect a greater proportional winter motion than is to be found on higher glaciers for the melting would be less by a great deal than in the summer and yet the rapid descent and frequent rain would cause a movement greater in comparison to the melting than we should find in the hotter months this was fully borne out in the case of the fox glacier for douglas found some of my flags which had been as usual visible from each other invisible from points where originally they could be seen owing to the ice having banked up considerably also on two rocky points or capes on the north side the ice had completely covered a large portion of rock visible in the summer i do not know why this advance or increase was visible on the fox glacier while on its neighbour a general decrease was found it may be and probably is due to the different aspect of the two valleys this one faces slightly north of west and therefore loses the winter sun for many hours in the day on its lower portion while the franz joseph faces due north and receives the whole heat of the day again this glacier has the steep hillsides on the sunny side while the other has them on the opposite side when reliable observations as to the motion of the ice are taken we shall probably find a much higher rate of flow on the franz joseph than on the fox glacier an unnamed peak generally confused with hedinger from the west coast and not visible except from high points on the eastern ranges stands at the head of the fox and is the most prominent summit from the terminal face this i have seen from several different points and always held that it is distinct from hedinger when fitzgerald made his ascent of the latter 
he left a large cairn on the summit, and he and I distinctly saw this from the Fritz Glacier when we were there during the next season. I had explained my contention to him before we started, and we therefore made a point of deciding the question. Since Hattinger was first named from the Tasman, and the name has been put on the wrong peak by the West Coast Department, it should be retained on the summit seen from the eastern side. I have generally called this unnamed peak the Horn, for it is a distinct horn from the west coast, De La Beche, and Darwin. Hedinger proper does not show as a peak at all from the Fox Glacier, though one of the finest as seen from the Tasman. The first impression I received on looking at the surroundings of the Fox Neve was that peaks rising from it would be most troublesome to climb from this side, but the fog cut off my view so soon that the mistake was excusable. Since then, however, a second visit has shown that so far from being more difficult, they would seem to be easier on this side than from the Tasman. From the Chancellor Ridge, the Horn, Glacier Peak, and Hedinger are all accessible, as also are the chief peaks of the Bismarck Range. Good passes may be found between Mount Tasman and Mount Host, also between the latter and Hedinger. In fact, so many expeditions of interest are to be made from here that I hope it will not be many years before we see a good hut placed on the Chancellor. End of chapter 8